Hello, Jack. Hey, Zach, and welcome everybody to the Just Hands Booker Podcast. Uh, I'm going to have Zach introduce our special guest today. Today we have on Grant from the Poker Guys. Uh, you might recognize him from one of the many videos on YouTube or from uh, his Hand of the Week podcast. Um, without further ado, here is Grant. How are you doing today, man? I'm good, Zach. How are you? Doing wonderful. Great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, so I, I know when, when we spoke a few weeks ago, you primarily play tournaments, but uh, you do grind the cash a little bit, right? I do, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I brought a hand today from the place I was telling you was my favorite place to play in Vegas during the series, uh, from the win. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, let's 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 hear about it. All right, so Zach, I know you know that the win has a pretty deep buy-in for two five games, usually two thousand. Um, in this particular game, it was a new table, and it was a really beautiful table in that it was a lot of tourists, and they all looked kind of rich. Uh, but they all wanted to make it a one k max buy-in, so we ended up doing a one k max buy-in instead of two k, which is why the stacks are going to be what they are in this hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how do you guys usually do this? You want me to start talking about everything in the hand? Yeah, if you start off just giving us, uh, you know, your history and what you've seen of the players involved in the hand, and you know, any other important table dynamics, uh, and then you know, okay, well, the the, the main action. the main thing is the uh, the small blind is going to be the villain in the hand, and he is by we've been playing for only about an hour, but he's built his stack to about fifteen hundred because he's pushing everybody else around. Um, essentially, he's a maniac, and everybody else is weak loose and it's working for him but he's clearly not very good uh the rest of the table like i said weak loose and easily exploitable so uh, i am in the cutoff in this hand and there's no straddle or anything it's uh two five again and plus one limps plus two limps hijack limps and then i'm in the cutoff with ace eight of spades i generally consider this a limp spot but the table was so weak so i made it 35 dollars with ace eight of spades in the cutoff the small blind who is the maniac uh he has approximately 1500 i have a thousand in my stack i don't know if i said that uh he calls and then the big blind calls plus two calls and i call all right i don't call i've already been in the pot excuse me so, um, so, so it's I, f- four-handed and you're in position with ace eight of spades that's correct so after the rake it's 146 dollars in the pot Okay, so the, before we move on to the flop, I just want you to kind of maybe expand upon why this is a raise spot versus a limp spot, because you said, like, the table is so weak. Uh, I typically will think of this as a limp spot, too, because this that's a great time to overflush really bad, like, queen x, king x suited hands that will sure. likely fold to, uh, you know, a raise like 35. Uh, if it was just one limper, then it's, you know, kind of a straightforward raised ice lake gets head, heads up but when there's three limpers it's a to me a standard limp spot so when you said the table was weak did did you mean like you think they would just rarely limp fold even like they're kind of garbage queen x king x suited like what what made this specific spot there's a there's a bit of a mix um there at least one of the guys who had limped in front of me was never folding which i was fine with because i'm fine with just building equity when i feel like i generally have the best hand I was pretty sure the small blind was going to call the villain in the hand because his VPIP was something like 99%. It was kind of insane. And so I, I was fine with having position on both of those guys. 
Uh, the big blind was the surprise who called. I didn't really expect the big blind to be in the hand, so I assume their range was was pretty strong at that point. Um, but yeah, I think I would probably limp 90% of the time at least here. I just felt like with how weak the table was and how easy it would be to extract value and figure out what they were trying to do post-flop, it was better for me just to build a pot in position. Yeah, and I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And like to the listeners... Um... I think it can be really easy to tell yourself it's a spot like this a lot more often than it is, you know, and I then, agree. Uh, it can be very easy to, you know, raise a bunch of limbs with even more marginal hands like Jack nine suited queen 10 suited when you feel like you have, you know, a positional and skill advantage when often the best play is to, you know, limp behind or, or fold. But I think this is a spot for the reason that Grant described that it is a pretty clear raise spot. Uh, and I also think, the the big assumption here if you're trying to figure out when to do this in your game uh is you know what percent of the time are they going to fold their dominated hands because you kind of want to raise it to a size that will just exacerbate their limping garbage hands mistake like limp folding is a small mistake you want them to make the big mistake of limp calling you know the biggest amount they will with those hands and then hopefully giving more away of it post-flop absolutely um also part of my thought process was with the small blind having such an insane VPIP um, and playing so many hands that I agree with you about the example of Jack nine suited. I did it with an ace high specifically because it could become a really good bluff catcher against that guy. Who's going to try to put a lot of pressure on me post flop. And he's relatively easy to read due to sizing and stuff, which I'll explain later. Yeah. Yeah. I think that having him being confident that he's going to come along will bring a lot of those dominated hands. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great open. Uh, so you're four ways to the flop. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, what's the action on the flop? Uh, the pot was 146 again, and the flop was five of spades, five of clubs, three of diamonds. So the flop action started as it often did when this small blind was in the pot. He led for $55 into four players' uh on this flop having flatted pre, which can be a good play by good players sometimes, but I know this guy is not doing it in any balanced way and essentially never has a five. Um, so both of the other opponents fold, and this is where I make kind of an interesting decision. I decide I want to play a big pot with this guy, and I know generally I should just play to bluff catch here, but I want to bluff catch huge, so I raise it to 155 he then three bets to 355. So obviously this looks like a terrible spot, right, guys? <laughs> uh, I mean, it just all depends on your assumptions. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, cer- certainly, like, uh, if you think he's bluffing wide enough here, it's, you know, it's an excellent play. Uh, and so I'll, I'll have, having you having played with this guy, you know, I'll, I'll trust you. Okay. <laughs> all right, so... Um, I got to go back a little bit to explain why I might raise it and why I do ultimately call his raise his three bet to 355. Um, His sizing was extremely exploitable and very transparent. If he had something like a five, first of all, he would have checked. I know this with 99% certainty. Uh, If he has a three and I raise, he may call, but he's never going to three bet with a three. Uh, I'm pretty sure about that with this guy. So I feel like when he raises, he almost always has a draw or just a a pure clean bluff. And 
I can try to avoid the cards that I feel like will improve his hand and decide later whether or not I want to call any further aggression. So I did decide to call the 3-bet to 355 with ace high on the 5-5-3 board. So my, my, my first question is, are any of his, as you put it, clean bluffs, are any of them beating you? Like, would he ever do this with pocket twos or a better ace-ace-x hand? Uh, I don't think he would play pocket twos any differently than he would play a three. He might lead 55 with pocket twos, but I don't think he would three-bet it. I don't put him on any ace-highs because he's been three... I, this is something I, I neglected to say pre-flop. He's been three-betting any ace-high the entire the entire session so far. I... I I've seen him show up with ace highs a lot after three bet pots. So I don't put him on even a worse ace than me, even. So I think this is really important. Uh, I mean, with these assumptions, we're just absolutely crushing his range. So my question is here, it's not whether it's call or fold, it's whether to call or four bet. Uh, right. So like, if, if we're going to be this you know, strong that basically the best hand he can have here is like king high... Uh, or in some ways like a, a combo draw, then we we want it to go all in if that will do that if that will if that's possible. So do you think in retrospect if you made like a tiny four bet could that induce a shove? Because if so, then that's the play that I like. If that just looks too strong, then yeah, I, I like calling. Uh, I'm not sure if that would have induced a shove or not. With my stack being one k, he may not be really truly apprised of like when he should be shoving based on stack to pot ratio and stuff like that so maybe he would shove as a bluff there if i made a tiny four bet although i my my inclination at the time this this did occur during the world series so it's been quite a while now but i do remember my inclination at the time being that uh four bet would fold out all of his garbage range and if for some reason he had a three which i really didn't think he would ever have a three but if for some reason he decided to play a three like this against me I don't think he was going to fold to the four bet, and that was why I ultimately decided to call and uh, bluff catch for later and try to essentially double up. Okay, uh, sounds pretty standard to me. <laughs> <laughs> standard? I don't know if this is standard. This is one of the wackiest pots I've ever played in my life. But um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess like straightforward. Like given your yeah. assumptions, it's a you know classic classic raise for value with ace high and call. Yeah, yeah. Raise, I, uh, sorry, raise, to him, raise with ASI to induce a bluff to call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that um, talking to Zach, at least, which I, I have met Zach before, I know you guys are probably pretty game theoretical and uh, and down to the numbers type of guys, which I am too. But And I understand this, this hand contains a lot of subjective assumptions, which may not be what you guys typically have on your podcast. It's actually so, like, that's kind of our thing. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, subjective it's, it's, assumptions. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's bringing bringing the numbers to the sub- subjective assumptions. Uh, actually, Jack, do you want to talk a little bit more about? Yeah, I mean, we would like we would like to become a little bit more specific about our subjective assumptions, uh, using some more advanced analysis to sort of hedge our bets a little bit. But definitely, okay. we're trying to create the maximally exploitative line. Uh, so we're not. <laughs> We're not too concerned about things like balance uh, on this podcast against the types of opponents you're likely to find in hands on this podcast. Uh, so yeah, so here, you know, we're exploiting the line of this guy basically showing up in this exact spot with everything other than the things we wouldn't want him to have. Uh, 
which is a great a great situation for uh, our holdings. Yeah, right. Um, at the moment, by the way, I I was putting him on four six most of the time. I the open ended draw, um, maybe a gut shot sometimes, but I don't necessarily think he would play a gut shot in this way. So mm-hmm. I know we bo- boiled his range down to King highs and worse, but. I was kind of zeroed in on on the cards that actually made sense with the board more than the pure bluffs. So okay, well, if I, in that case, then I would definitely shove here. Yeah, okay, definitely. I, can I, I also don't think like if this guy really has a VPIP, like you said, of near ninety nine percent. What would you say like an accurate VPIP is like 80? eighty? Okay, 80. yeah. <laughs> uh, so if he has a VPIP of eighty, I think even if you you just can't zero him in on a draw like this, you know, like. You've only been playing with him for a little bit of time. No, no flush draws, right? Uh, no flush draws. No, it's a five-five-three club spade okay. diamond, I think. So, so given given that, like, I I just think that if he's the type of player who is capable of three bet bluffing with air on the flop, I don't think this is the type of player that's going to be the vast majority of the time doing that with a strong draw. Four, like well, so, I, so I think if he shows up here with four six suited, which like let's say he has all the combos of four six suited, which it sounds like he will with a VPIP of eighty, will he play all of his four six suiteds this way? Definitely, but I think he will likely combinatorically have way more just like other air hands, and I think it would, it, it's just probably a little ambitious to say that he likely has that hand here. I certainly agree with you, and in retrospect, I was kind of wrong. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm just telling you what happened and what I was thinking. I'm not saying I was right. Uh, okay, def- yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at the point, at the moment, uh, it, and part of the reason for that was I had seen him betting about a third of the pot on the flop uh, as a donk bet withdraws two or three times previously. Uh, they had been flush draws, except for one that was an open ender. Uh, so I think it was three flush draws and one open ender that I'd seen him play almost exactly this way with one of the flush draws, he did end up shorter stack who called him with aces and ended up losing to the flush draw. So part of my assumption was probably based on that, uh, admittedly small sample size of seeing him donk bet with draws before. Okay. Uh, so, so you call the flop. No, I raised the flop. Oh, oh, you, you call the three bet on the flop. Yeah. So we have like what, like about eight fifty going to the turn, right? Eight fifty six. Eight fifty six, and what's he have left now? Like, well, I am the effective stack. Oh, you're effective um, stack, okay? Right. So, I have, I think it's six ninety left, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So obviously the SPR is not ideal for me, but I'm kind of okay with it the way this guy plays. Yeah, um, that that sounds <laughs> that sounds good to me of diamonds so oh sorry if he did have it, it cut off oh, what, what's the oh, did card? It? king of diamonds so okay. that does not that doesn't uh i think it, it does bring a flush draw i'm not really concerned about that obviously um he then checks so i want to know what you guys think actually about that when he checks what is what does that make you assume uh i think that it is not improbable that he's decided to give up. Right. Uh, I think that most people aren't going to suspect that you are calling them as light as you are. You know, it's it's a little surprising, given everything else we've said, that he would give up. 
Uh, but I definitely don't think he's like checking a king in this spot. No, he's certainly not. I think he's likely putting me on an overpair to the flop at this point. That's my not necessarily what I would put me on if I were him, but that's what I assume he's putting me on. Yeah, it's it's. I'm having a really hard time trying to put myself in this guy's shoes because it, you know, if you're the guy who is just like unbelievably aggressive, and now you think that you have an overpair and a king comes, then maybe you decide, you know, I can represent that king. Uh, or I can keep representing this five and maybe get him to fold that hand. Uh, but well, I, I also don't think it's unlikely that he would have. He's just giving up now. Uh, what do you think, Zach? Yeah, I think most of the time with the information I've heard, I think this is just like giving up because if we put his range as you know no ace highs, no pairs, uh, he's really not supposed to have that many kings in his range here, and the ones he does, he's going to bet. So I think he still has, like, the same no-pair type hand. So when he's checking, like, he's not checking because he thinks that's going to look extra strong when he shoves the river or, like, will check-raise a small bet. I think he's generally checking to give up. So in this spot, uh, with that assumption, I'm thinking, okay, how can I induce a bluff? And it's just a question of whether betting, like, really small on the turn um, will induce maybe like a call and a shove on the river or like a check raise on the turn more than just checking back the turn. And in my experience, betting like really small, almost like insulting sizing uh, against a player like this will be more effective than a check. So we have like a pot of 856. I'd maybe bet something like 52, 56, also to kind of protect our equity because, you know, an unpaired hand has pair outs against us. So I, I think to protect our equity and to potentially induce a bluff either on the turn of the river, I'll bet something small, maybe not as small as 52, but definitely nothing greater than like, yeah, like 120 or 30. That's a cool idea. And I like that idea. Um, I, it did cross my mind to bet, maybe not that small, but it did cross my mind to bet something like 150 or 200 to, to induce. But I felt like I had already played the hand crazy enough. I'm just, I, I, mode at the moment and I decided to check back and see what he did on the river. And I do definitely understand the logic behind what you were saying there, Zach. And I like that as an idea. And I also like the ability to insult people with a bluff size. That's a pretty cool thing to do. <laughs> well, true. It would be a value bet, but uh, it would it would be to make them perceive it as though we were bluffing, right? To make them think that's insulting to think that that you could bluff me off with such a small size. Yeah, it's also something I talk about with my students a lot is like, again, you want to play, you know, fundamentally sound poker and have a sense of what the fund fundamentals are, but you also want to like make people make mistakes. So I think a lot of the standard people you'll find at like a one, two, one, three, two, five game are going to like most of the time play like, you know, make a good amount of small mistakes and make the occasional larger mistakes and like bigger pots. But then like sometimes a lot of times due to tilt like playing too long or like someone rubbing them the wrong way, they'll make a ton of mistakes. I think like every recreational player will have some days where it's just like plays extra bad. So my job is to bring those days out as much as possible and like use sizings and, you know, say things not in a way that's like, you know, insulting or like creating a hostile atmosphere at the table, but just doing things to induce more mistakes 
and I find weird sizings, whether it's like severely underbedding or overbedding, does that. So someone who like isn't normally a station, if they see you know a younger kid kind of c bedding a lot and then make like a three x pot overbed, like their range instantly becomes inelastic, and then I make so much more money than the standard just like near pot bet. So that's something I'm thinking about a lot, and one of the really great ways to like put people in uncomfortable new decisions. Uh, is to use underbets and overbets, and especially against most players, they're not going to have been in those spots before. So the mis- instead of making like a small mistake against a normal size bet, they'll make a larger mistake trying to adjust to this new situation. That is really great advice, and I agree with everything you said. That's definitely true. Uh, to be fair, I think I'm probably playing this hand incorrectly for the most part just because the table is so soft i should probably be playing a bit more abc uh, so whoa, whoa, whoa why do you why do you say that um <laughs> i think that over time if i just stay at this table for five or six hours and it doesn't break and nobody moves i'm just gonna it's it's kind of like a locked up gradual probably full buy-in profit by the time i'm done there if i just play in a way that's completely non-exploitable even though these people aren't going to be exploiting me at all um i understand that it's it it makes sense to play exploitively the way that i'm playing this hand some of the time but when the table is so soft it might be a bad idea admittedly yeah i I understand that sentiment like it's funny that I i think a lot of players use balance as sort of a way to be risk averse um right you know, rather than try and take a riskier line to capitalize on your the perceived strategy of the opponent, taking an unexploitable line that will, you know, allow the opponent to beat themselves, uh, is definitely less risky. And I, I definitely understand for some players, especially you know, that I think there's a lot of validity to that. If you're playing. You know, if you're playing online, like, eight tabling every day, you can't really think that much about your decisions. Uh, you don't want to go on these huge swings. I can understand, you know, sacrificing some EV, you know, for it to be more risk-averse. But I, you know, I just love what you did on the flop so much. You know, even though it's potentially... I mean, you know, potentially it could be a huge mistake, but I don't think it is. And so I, I hope that you know we can we continue that for the rest of the hand well we i mean <laughs> essentially we do um wait and but before we move on to the rest of the hand i just i i think this is a really important point because i think and uh, i kind of wrote about this in like uh a blog post i did a few months back called realistic bankroll management like i think for a lot of players like if you find yourself in this game you know, you bought them for 1K and, you know, you don't really have a pink poker bankroll. Your poker bankroll is just like a few thousand dollars. Uh, then I think it makes sense to do that. But if you're playing for profit, if you're, you know, a serious player, semi-pro, like with a, you know, a proper bankroll for the stake, you know, at least $10,000, um, then I think you should be pushing all your edges. And at a really soft table like this, uh, playing a much wider range and playing a higher variant style is going to net you so much more profit long term. So uh, I don't think, like given what you've said about the table and this guy, Grant, like I don't think you should have been more ABC. I think uh, up until the turn you've played it, you know, great. 
I, well, that's fair, and uh, I understand that sentiment as well. I suppose uh, uh, an easier way to say what I'm trying to say is I often have thoughts that amount to making plays like this and end up not doing them because I kind of slap myself on the wrist and say that that's too fancy or something like that. Um, but at the, I mean, the outside world implications of this pot may have made it happen because I happened to like, it was my biggest tournament score of my life the day before. So that might've kind of made me decide to make my more fun and ambitious plays happen. And I agree that maybe it's more plus EV to do it this way. But my general thought when sitting down at such a soft table is to play ABC, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not sure. You're probably right that it's wrong to think that way. But uh, I guess that's just kind of the knit in me thinking about locking up a win when it's so easy to just have a win against players like this. Uh, but obviously it's a lot more fun to play this way. That's for sure. And it may be more profitable as well. Yeah, def- definitely more fun. Definitely more profitable in my book. Um, so... Yeah, and I also like a note to the listeners, like, you know, raising to induce a bluff on five five three is not always gonna be a good play. Like No, uh, you have and, to like you have sometimes to. you might have like the voice that tells you to do that and then retrospect it was probably not correct. So it's like this is a very specific spot when it's correct to do that, and a lot of times like the fancy play person you know, fancy play devil on your right or left shoulder, whichever one it is, will be just wrong. And it's just kind of fancy play for fancy play's sake. Uh, but identifying when are the spots to actually pull the trigger, uh, like here, is like what separates, you know, uh, someone that makes 30, 40 an hour playing 2-5 and someone that just absolutely crushes, you know? That's a reasonable point for sure. Um, like you said, I'm a tournament player, so I may be a bit more risk averse in 2-5 than somebody who grinds 2-5 for a living. Uh, and that may be a factor as well, as far as my thought process here. Yeah, for sure. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, right. I I I just want to know what happens. Okay. <laughs> well, so the turn was the king. Uh, just in case anybody forgot, it was a five-five-three flop, and the turn was the king of diamonds. Uh, the river is a queen of spades, so I don't generally think this improves him. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, so he moves in, obviously, or else I would, probably wouldn't have brought this hand. <laughs> and I pretty much know I'm going to call. I still have in my mind that he has 4-6, uh, so I was trying to avoid 4s, 6s, 7s, and deuces, obviously. Um, and that missed it all. I just wanted to make sure, so I, I took about a minute just to make sure that everything I had thought still made sense to me. Because I don't see how he checks the king and then moves in on the queen unless somehow he flopped quads or something which obviously is one combo. Um, three's full, I feel like he's betting the turn. I don't think he's playing three's full this way throughout the hand. I do call. I was certainly wrong about what he had. He had seven deuce offsuit. He showed it. It sounds like you were very right about what he had. <laughs> well, uh, I thought I thought he had a, an open ender at least. I was right about at least two of the cards I didn't want to see. At least there was that. Well, seven and deuce. You were wrong about his VPIP. It's not 99%. It's 100%. <laughs> Well, I I mean, it, it should be, right? But a lot of players don't don't really go by logic. Yeah, uh, so this guy is some I, I saw this guy open eight four off under the gun and then I saw him on his button then fold and I was wondering what possible hand could that be that he's folding on the button yeah. after opening eight four off under the gun. So I don't think there's too much rhyme or reason to why he's playing when he's playing. Uh, he just happens to play a lot. Yeah. 
Well, I think the fact that also the fact that seven deuce offsuit is the worst hand <laughs> yeah. makes it slightly more attractive. If you're yeah, only I think... playing ninety percent of hands. What's your guys' policy on uh, on swear words on this podcast? Bad words. Fucking go for it, man. Okay, so something that uh, I coined on the breakdown uh, was a fuck you player, and that's a player who is playing essentially to say fuck you to everybody. They show all their bluffs. They want to win every hand, and they get mad at you when you try to play back at them. And this guy was a fuck you player, so that's a big factor in the way I played the hand. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that the analysis was sound. I, I think that the the only thing uh, I would say about this hand, I think that given your reads on the flop, uh, I would play it exactly the way you played it. I think that had I uh, been as suspicious or thought his range was heavily weighted towards draws, then I think it makes sense to move in on the flop uh, just to make them pay for their equity. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. You, regardless of how you range them and play, uh, I think it's a call on the river. Uh, and I'm sure this must have been a thrilling sequel to your tournament score. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun hand, obviously. If I had lost it, I would have felt like a, a big moron. For sure. If he shows up with like Queen 10 there and just completely owned me, that would have sucked. But luckily, that's not what happened. Yeah. So I, I think when we spoke in person, you said this is a hand you've like brought to friends and like other poker friends have like a lot of different opinions about it. Is, is this correct? I don't think so. I might have been talking about a different hand. Oh, okay. No, I was yeah. going to be curious what like some other poker players that you've spoken to thought about this one. But, uh, uh well, know, because honestly, it's like it's a really interesting hand. But given given your assumptions, I think it plays, you know, it plays fairly. Like I can't imagine doing anything else besides just betting small on the turn. I understand that certainly, and uh, that may have been a mistake on my part. I, I guess I just felt like bluff catching. I wanted to be a hero that day. And you were. <laughs> you were. You were the big hero, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got a cape and everything. It was great. Oh, that's what I should do one time. Bring like a cape in my backpack. Yeah. And after a hero call, just like put it on. Yeah, that'll make you a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> like wear, will... a, wear a hoodie with like a Superman shirt on under it. <laughs> these are these are pretty good ideas. You should do it. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to work on my game first, I think. <laughs> you sound like you know what you're talking about. I think you'll be okay. Maybe against that villain. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody would be okay against that guy. Well, actually, the rest of the table wasn't. He was just obliterating them. So I guess his game works against certain types of players. Yeah, I actually, I've played with a lot of people like that. And I, I actually think that they generally do very well in these games because people just are folding so much. Um, right. Maybe not very well. I mean, I think, you know, almost everyone will eventually adjust to you. But I think definitely, like, these are not like huge, huge losers in the game. Like they are when there's a player like us at the table who, you know, understands what these frequencies mean, uh, and aren't waiting for, you know, a top hair hand to call them down with. Right. Um, to be fair against this table, if I weren't there, this guy probably would have been a winning player. And I did tell Zach that, uh, I like the win as a place to play just because 
there's a lot of wealthy tourists there, but at the same time, usually the table is not going to be this soft. There's usually going to be at least one guy like me at the table. So maybe it depends on how long he stays. You know, if he ends up getting in a spot like this over the course of his game, maybe he loses. Or if he somehow avoids this, then maybe he can just beat up on the rest of the table because they were completely unaware of the transparency of his sizing and everything like that. And it, it might have just been able to to keep beating up on them. Yeah, I was in Vegas last summer for about two weeks, and like I think the variability in games is just like so great. Like our listeners who are based there, uh, you know, know a lot more than me. But I, I played in, you know, I played at the Win, I played at the Venetian, Planet Hollywood, the Rio, and you could find some games that were like as good as this, and then in the same room, just a few hours later, like the same table would then be terrible. You know, yeah. so I think like for Vegas, it's just kind of any anything is really possible. Yep. Yeah. At two five, especially, I feel like that's the most variable stake. Yeah. One three. One three tends to be pretty soft, no matter what, unless there's a completely packed two five area and there's a couple grinders waiting for a two five game to open. But one three seems to generally be quite soft, from my experience. Two five, I agree. Usually, you'll find one or two guys who are going to give you trouble, and sometimes you'll find a table like this. Yeah. Well, for all of our listeners, who are going to be at the World Series of Poker this summer. Uh, I hope you find tables like this. I hope I find a table like this. Um, you know, I'll be there from June uh, 11th until the 17th. So if you're around in Vegas and want to meet up for a meal, for a drink, to maybe play at the same place, just you know, shoot me an email at Zach at JustHandsPoker.com. Uh, but we're going to close out the episode with Grant kind of telling us a little bit more about what he does. Uh, oh, okay. And when he'll be in the, at the WSOP this summer. Well, I haven't made my schedule yet, actually, because I have a lot of stuff going on this summer. Uh, but I, as a tournament player, I'm going to surround my trip with the tournaments I most want to play. And that would be, this year, the Summer Solstice and the Monster Stack. Uh, if you guys don't know what the Summer Solstice is, it was called the Extended Levels last year. It's just a $1,500 bracelet event with 90-minute levels instead of 60-minute levels. The Monster Stack being the best $1,500 tournament in the world, the stack not only increases the edge of the better players, but also attracts a lot of really bad players. So that's at the end of June, June 24th. So I'll probably be there like mid-June to early July. Um, and yeah, I hope to see everybody there. And, and I hope to see you guys there, Zach and Jack. That would be cool. Um, and you said a bit about what I do? Yeah, please. All right, so... For those of you listening uh, to this great podcast with Zach and Jack, uh, if you don't know, I am the co-host of another poker podcast called The Breakdown with Jonathan Levy. Uh, we're both professional poker players like Zach and Jack, and we've been doing The Breakdown for about a year and a half now as a podcast and a YouTube channel. Uh, the channel is called The Poker Guys. So uh, both of these enterprises are with uh, my friend Jonathan Levy, who's another pro and uh, the Poker Guys is what we call ourselves, which somehow wasn't taken. I don't know how, but we mm. took it. Even though it sounds a little goofy, it gets the point across, right? Um, our YouTube channel, which has become a lot more popular than the podcast, is The Poker Guys. So what we do on each of these uh, mediums is we break down one televised poker hand. We don't talk about hands the same way that you guys do or their hands that you've actually played. You know, we talk... Like our most recent episode is about a hand between Antonio Esfandiari and Doyle Brunson where the pot was like a million dollars. Um, so 
we don't claim to to know exactly what's going through these guys' heads at all. Our best over the course of about a forty five minute podcast to break down and analyze every decision point in the hand and range each player from the other player's perspective and have a little fun. And the videos are just a shorter, more succinct version of that with pictures, much less safe to, to watch when you're driving than listen to the podcast. So I'd advise the podcast if you're driving. <laughs> Otherwise, the videos are a bit more accessible because they're shorter and there's pretty pictures. And uh, we've had some success recently and we're really enjoying doing it. Well, yeah, I'm a big fan of the podcast, uh, and you know it was a pleasure meeting with you and talking about uh, kind of poker and poker podcasting a few weeks back. And I recommend all my listeners uh, if you really like uh, going over hand histories uh, and you know looking for something a little bit different, not necessarily the games that you play, but some like really fun, interesting hands. Then I'd check out their uh, podcast and video series. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Yeah, I also think like. It's valuable to sort of stretch your brain in a different way and think about, uh, you know, how these top players uh, who have, you know, a lot more extensive histories with each other than, you know, you're likely to have with someone in a 2-5 game. Uh, right. It, it stretches your brain a little bit of a different way. And I think that any any way you can stretch your brain uh, will help your overall game. So, yeah, I highly recommend the podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we uh, we don't generally see plays and players that make such big mistakes as the guy I played against in the hand that I referred to today, which it's kind of fun to see two elite players making elite plays against each other. So generally, we don't see the same disastrous mistakes, uh, although we do sometimes, and those can be fun in their own right. Well, in that game you're talking about, the, the most recent hand, there's that guy, what, the Kirk, right? Yeah, Matt yeah. Kirk, yeah. So it sounds like he's he's kind of a fuck you player. <laughs> oh, he he absolutely is. I don't know how that guy has so much money. I think it must be from PLO. Oh, PLO, the, the yeah. Magical PLO. Yeah, I guess he must be really good at that. I I'm, If you just never fold in that game, I guess he'll win sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we did, a, we did a hand with him about a month ago, which was just maybe the most insane hand we had ever analyzed against Andrew Robel. Do you guys know what hand I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I, I know the hand. Yeah, so anybody who wants to look that up, it's on... Uh, poker central if you don't really care about what i have to say about it you should check the handout anyway just uh poker central's youtube channel has uh i think i don't remember what it's called but matt kirk against andrew Roble. just type it in it's a hand worth watching 50 or 60 times yeah it's definitely like when you just think of like epic heads up no limit badassery at the high stakes like this is this is that hand yeah it really is There's a lot of sizing mistakes in that hand speaking of sizing mistakes yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah grant thank you so much for coming on uh it was a pleasure having you and talking with you and i look forward to seeing you in a few weeks right yeah it was a uh, great being on and thanks for having me hey all jack here to share an exciting opportunity to get poker coaching and commentary from greg raymer the 2004 world series of poker main event champion as well as zach and i we're organizing a session where participants will play a four-hour, two-five, no-limit, full-ring cash game. The game will be held in Akron, Ohio, uh, and this game will be filmed using RFID technology so that you can see the whole cards. Uh, and Greg, Zach, and I will be commentating on the whole session, and after it's over, we'll give individualized coaching to the participants in person uh, and have a group dinner. And then after the fact, we'll create a comprehensive leak finder document based on the participants' play. 
so for an example of what that Leap Finder document will look like, you can check out our coaching page uh, on JustHandsPoker.com, our website. So we're still working out the details with Greg, uh, and we're not 100% certain that this will happen, but we're looking to gauge interest. Uh, so please, if you're interested, write in to Zach or Jack at JustHandsPoker.com uh, and let us know so we can reserve you a seat and answer any questions that you might have. And we'll be coming back to the podcast with additional information as it comes. All right, that's all we've got for this week, and we'll see you soon.